1: Welcome to The Exchange. I'm Kelly Evans, and here's what's ahead this hour. Four days in a row of gains for the major averages. The Dow almost at a 52-week high after the S&P and NASDAQ both hit bears, all of this thanks to cooling inflation. Our investment strategist says we are in a Goldilocks moment for stocks. She'll tell us why she's sticking with big tech and where else she's putting money to work. Meanwhile, is Bidenomics responsible for keeping the economy hotter and rates higher for longer? Former Dallas Fed President Robert Kaplan says the Federal Reserve needs to call this out more. He'll join us momentarily to discuss. Plus, Disney CEO Bob Iger hinting at some major changes that could be coming to the company now that he'll be at the helm through 2026. The highlights of his interview this morning and our experts weigh in on what that could mean for the media industry as a whole. But first, of course, today's market action with Mr. Chu.
2: Peaks green, just like we saw out in Lake Tahoe with Scott Wapner shot there. I do remember that. I fondly remember Lake Tahoe and those Beautiful. particular views. They are as good as they are in real life, by the way, on TV. So anyway, Kelly, to your point about the markets, we are green across the board and just about near session highs right now. The S&P 500 now just sitting right below, almost on top of the 4,500 mark. So we've gained almost 100 points or so over the course of the last week here, up about two thirds of 1 percent. To give you an idea of where the S&P has been on an intraday basis at the highs of the session, up about 30 points, up about 17 at the lows. So very much a positive day so far. The Dow Industrials up about one-tenth of one percent, 51 points to the upside, 34,399. The Composite Index, the real outperformer here, up north of one percent, almost one and a quarter percent, 171 points for the Nasdaq, 14,091 the last trade there. That technology trade really standing out in today's session so far. Interest rates also a big part of that discussion. I want to say it's four days in a row that we've seen the 10-year benchmark U.S. Treasury note yield fall in terms of value, but rise in terms of price for that overall government bond. We're falling again, 3.78% for the benchmark 10-year note yield. The two-year note yield falls to 4.63%, and you can kind of see that two-year, 10-year difference narrows just a little bit more. Remember, we were north of 100 basis points or 1% negative. Now we're just about 85 basis points there as well. So watch that two-year, 10-year spread on the rate side of things. And then three stocks that have really kicked off earnings season, so to speak. Now We talk often talk about the big banks as the ones that really kind of kick things off in earnest. But we got three S&P 500 companies that have been in the news today because of earnings. And generally, all three are up. Delta, PepsiCo, ConAgra. Delta gets a check mark up here because it's a new 52 week high better than expected results boost to their full year forecast pepsico better than expected results boost to its forecast conagra brands a more mixed picture profits better revenue is a slight miss but again a raising of their annual forecast so three stocks two consumer one airline all consumer focused all up on the day. We'll see if that bodes well for the rest of earnings season. Kel, I'll send things back over to you.
1: All right, Don, thank you very much. Well, first it was consumer prices. Now another gauge shows inflationary pressures cooling. Producer prices rising just a tenth of a percent last month, and that's raising hopes that the Fed rate hikes may soon be over. But here's what San Francisco Fed President Mary Daly had to say about that earlier on Squawk on the Street.
3: It's really too early to say that we've declared victory on inflation. This month of data is very positive. I hope it's part of a downward trend in inflation. But I am in a wait and see mode on that because I remain resolute to bring inflation down to 2 percent.
1: Well, my next guest agrees the Fed has not done hiking rates and warns that fiscal policy is thwarting the Fed's efforts to cool the economy. Here with me is Robert Kaplan, former president of the Dallas Fed and currently co-chair of the Draper Richards Kaplan Foundation. Welcome. Thanks, Kelly. So, most significantly, let's tally up the impact. How, and we've all seen, I'm driving on the highway now. They're doing work, and it says, you know, funded by the, the I forget which of the three bills, there's $2 trillion in total the last right. couple of years. Um, how big an impact are we talking here?
4: So at a 500,000-foot level, you're seeing construction spending is dramatically higher as a percent of GDP. Uh, to understand this better, you've got to go into each local market. Uh, and, with, and I do a lot of traveling around the country, what you see is many, many states, and the announcements are continuing, are announcing the largest infrastructure project in the history of that state. Uh, the impact of these government-enabled construction projects, when I say government-enabled because there tend to be public-private partnerships, mm-hmm. uh, is they not only affect construction spending, but they have a multiplier effect on the service sector, Uh, In a lot of these markets, they're being done, got very tight labor markets already. So people are going to switch jobs to move into these new jobs. And so at at a high level, it may look somewhat immaterial at a local level. It's having a very material effect on these local labor markets and service sector markets. Yeah,
1: and I think in the labor market in particular right now, when we look at the claims number this morning, and things haven't really, they slowed last year. We kind of saw the implosion of a lot of the high-value tech stuff and things like that, but the resilience of the rest of the economy is the most notable thing about this year. That fun, You made an interesting point the other day that some of the um, localities have to spend this money before the end of 2024. And I guess the question is, do we want all this to happen? Because if you looked at it glass half full, you'd say, wow, the Fed's getting everything it wanted. Inflation's coming down and the economy's still strong. And isn't this, you know, is Bidenomics helping or is it, you know, counteracting what the Fed is trying to do?
4: It is, in my opinion, it's blunting to some extent what the Fed is trying to do. It's not all bad, because it means, I think, without these projects, we might have otherwise been in a recession by now. So the economy stayed resilient. Many of these projects are good projects. These battery manufacturing projects are necessary. But many local officials are telling me, we've had this project that we've been looking at for 30 years, and because of the government money, it was marginal until we got the government money. And so all, all I'd recommend is, is I, I think it means if I were on the FOMC, I'd be leaning toward one more rate increase, although I'd have an open mind going in the meeting. But I would be urging, if I were at the FOMC, I'd be urging the, the Fed to do a lot more work in understanding not only what's been announced, but what's the forward pipeline. Because if this money were to dry up right. in the out years, I think you'll see these rate increases be have a lot more teeth than it looks like they have right now
1: and chair powell he was asked about this at the last press conference he kind of downplayed the impact he did and we always know there's a reluctance to kind of weigh in on what you know what the administration is doing and
4: and i think he said it was immaterial although it's helping construction and maybe at a high level it looks that way but i i i think this this feeds right into the wheelhouse of the fed you got 12 reserve banks in these local markets that i go to it's having an impact anything other than immaterial.
1: Yes. Uh, and Look I'm at hearing the local papers. I mean, you know, again, yeah. I grew up outside of Syracuse. The micron plan up there, $20 billion. It's all they talk about. We right. talked about some of the Midwest locations. Look at what's happening in Arizona. Um, this is absolutely driving the, the narrative in a lot of these economies.
4: It is. And, and I don't think it's going to change the action for the Fed in the next meeting. But there'll be a point at which they're going to have to decide, should we really pause for an indefinite period. And I think you've got to understand what the forward pipeline is because I think there's a lot more coming. Hmm. We're not done on Inflation Reduction Act projects, Infrastructure Act projects. Even since I talked to you just four or six weeks ago, there have been a whole series of new announcements since you and I spoke about it. And I just think it would behoove all of us just to get a better grip on what the forward pipeline is.
1: Before I ask you more about the forward outlook, let's pause. Bring in Rick Santelli. We just had a 30-year bond auction top of the hour. It sounds like it didn't go well, Rick.
5: It did not go well. But then again, we've had a very large rally pushing yields down. And it's sort of like catching a knife. There are many, including myself, who believe interest rates have peaked, who believe recession or not. You can still stay long stocks. But all of that seems to evaporate When you see this type of a market where interest rates are falling, if you look at a 30-year bond yield today, they're down four basis points, but they're hovering well below 4%. 3.91 was the auction yield, and that was for 18 billion 30-year bonds. The when-issued market was two basis points uh, below that, so lower yield. Higher price and higher yield, lower price, 391 versus 389 when issued market. doesn't take a rocket scientist to see that it wasn't aggressive bidding by the investors. All the metrics were actually pretty good. I'll pick out one notable. Uh, If you look at the direct bidders, 20.1, that's the best of 23. Dealers taking a little under 11%. That's good. 10 auction average 11%. But the tailing gives it a dog plus, D plus, and I was being generous there. But there's something to learn, Kelly, from this auction, that no matter how much investors believe interest rates have peaked, they still don't seem quite daring enough to buy it down at these levels, at least not in an auction. Back to you.
1: Another border collie of sorts. Uh, Rick, thanks. Let me turn back to Robert Kaplan. So kind of where do you think rates are going from here then um, based on what now looks like a little bit more buoyant view of the economy and uh, at least another Fed hike, maybe more?
4: I think you could see the Fed from Fed funds to the tenure, get even a little more inverted uh, in that many sectors that are economically sensitive and interest rate sec- sensitive are slowing. Uh Many of these enabled projects we just talked about really aren't sensitive to economic conditions or to interest rates. And so my guess is uh, you're gonna continue to have an inverted curve. And this is why I've been cautious about many more rate increases because I think they tend to disproportionately hurt banks that are very sensitive to this small business who tend to borrow at the Fed funds rate. They don't really affect big businesses much because they borrow along the curve. And so I'm a little nervous about what this is doing to the balance of power between big business and small business.
1: That's a great point. And one that will take a couple of years to answer, I think, although we are about to get some earnings uh, in the next few weeks. Can I ask a, a bigger picture question, too, about the impact? We talked about all these projects. We're building you know, chips and we're building batteries and all of these things here in the U.S. that might typically have been offshored. And while that's great for national security and great for our labor market right now, is it all fundamentally kind of? unproductive in the longer run? You know, does it make sense? Sort of like what the, does, does the efficiency of the economy, because we're doing less globalization and all the rest of it, does it suffer in the long run?
4: We knew that the energy transition was going to be expensive. And so this and the bright side will speed it along. I'll tell you what worries me more than anything is I think the number one determinant of our future is educational attainment.
1: Well, that our
4: young people and all the reports show, if anything, it's been deteriorating right
1: post COVID. The numbers look terrible.
4: And I think even in the last year. And my only concern is with all this spending, I don't think education has been prioritized enough. Uh, And so I think many of these projects will be good in the long run. But you need an educated workforce. And I I would love to see us reprioritize or increase the priority of educational attainment, zero to five, the whole ecosystem, skills training, secondary education. And I think we've let that lag a bit.
1: Yeah, but I mean, just real quickly on this, do you throw money at the problem? I mean, how do you fix it?
4: Well, teacher salaries is part of it, full day versus half day uh, pre-K, childcare that's affordable. Listen, GDP. These are
1: not the talking points I was expecting no. from former head of well, the Dallas Fed. And
4: we've spent a lot of time on this in my career and locally around the country. But GDP growth is growth in the workforce and growth in productivity. Some of this infrastructure spending, I feel it will help. But you need an educated workforce. And I don't think we're prioritizing that enough.
1: Listen, amen. Uh, Robert Kaplan, thank you so much. Appreciate your time today. Thanks, as I mentioned, man. former president of the Dallas Fed. Speaking of those bank earnings, the whole season really does kick off in earnest tomorrow morning. We'll hear from JP Morgan, Citi, and Wells Fargo before the bell. There you can see the whole landscape. JP Morgan, usually kind of the tone setter for everybody. Uh, then into next week, more results start to trickle out. We get Morgan Stanley on Tuesday, Bank of America as well. A couple of the smaller players. We get uh, uh, the beleaguered regionals all throughout the week, as you can see there with BNY and PNC on Tuesday kind of kicking things off. For the setup here, let's welcome back Jenny Montgomery Scott's Chris Marinak. It's a good sign if we haven't seen Chris in a couple of months, I think, uh, (laughs) along with our very own Leslie Picker. Leslie, let's start with you and the expectations for some of the biggies.
6: Hey, Kelly. Yeah, this is shaping up to be a pretty tough quarter, even for the largest of banks out there. Bank executives have been guiding the market lower, and analysts have been just slashing their earnings estimates left and right. The street has taken down their Q2 projections For the Big Six by 20 percent on average, from the estimates they had laid out just at the start of the year, just six months ago. That's thanks to rising funding costs, banks needing to pay depositors more amid higher for longer rates, and loan growth is slowing, so those dynamics are crunching margins. And the environment for deals, of course, with both M&A and IPOs has been abysmal. All of these headwinds come at a time where bank regulations are quickly changing, the direction of the economy is uncertain, so banks are likely to hold on to their capital rather than giving it back through buybacks and putting away reserves to protect against those risks. Much of this already priced into bank stocks, though, with valuations well below historical averages. KBW says, quote, this is what the trough looks like. If that's true, any hints of green shoots from the reports and conference calls may help generate renewed investor interest in the group. But we'll see tomorrow. As you mentioned, three of the big money center banks, that's JP Morgan, Citi, and Wells Fargo, they report. I'll be sitting down exclusively with Citi's CFO, Mark Mason, tomorrow on this very show.
1: Looking forward to that, Leslie. And, And then in terms of expectations for Morgan Stanley and Goldman, how does that differ? We know the trading environment has been more difficult. You know, there's not capital markets have been a little
6: bit quieter. Oh yeah, trading environment has been very difficult. There's a lot of uncertainty in terms of the direction of where the economy is going. That plays a role in just a muted trading environment overall. And then the regulatory environment for deal making also has people kind of sitting on ice. The pipeline is a little thin when it comes to deal making. And of course, you book revenue during the quarter when deals close. So even though you've seen you know several announcements during the quarter that look promising, those won't be booked as revenue during this quarter. That takes place when those deals actually close. A little bit of green shoots in the IPO market as well. Debt capital markets are seeing green shoots. But again, it's all about when that revenue actually gets booked. And so most analysts in the market are expecting to see a huge drop off in in investment banking during the quarter.
1: All right, Leslie, thank you. Appreciate it. Chris, we turn to you. You're expecting relatively good things for the regional banks, it sounds like.
7: Well, good things from the perspective of of the banks making money and tangible book value and tangible capital rising. I do think Leslie's on the right track. I think it's going to be a tough quarter from the margin and cost of funds. There's a big reset going on, Kelly, for sure. Um, We think that most banks are going to see higher loan loss provisions. So earnings misses most likely happen because of those two factors. But the reality is, and the market's looking way beyond the second quarter prints. They're looking into third and fourth quarter. Where deposit costs continue to rise, but the banks are getting ahead of the problems they have. And what's interesting to me is that we have seen deposits very much stabilize, only down about a half a percent on the Fed data from the end of uh, June through the end of uh, March. And so that's a win. It's happening because banks are paying up for funds. And so we are resetting the cost all around the street on funding, and that's going to come through on margins on the bad side. The flip side will be the loan yields will continue to get better. And I think, particularly heading into year end, you'll see a lot more new loans done at seven and a half, eight plus percent yields. And that's very bullish. So I think margins have an opportunity to stabilize. And we may even see a few portfolios on securities get restructured in Q3. And that's going to help as well in terms of the margin, not getting a whole lot worse than what we're going to see in the second and third quarter.
1: I'm glad you mentioned the loan loss provisions. You know, speaking with one of the most successful regional bank heads now retired a couple of months ago, and even as all the markets and everyone on the street is all excited about, you know, how great everything looks right now, he was saying he's more cautious. You know, I asked him if he agreed with Sheila Baird that the regional banks are a buy, and he said he wasn't so sure that we hadn't seen the credit cycle turn yet. And to him, it's, it, you know, it's just a matter of, of time. And it might not be now, and it might not even be for the rest of this year, but there is a sense that that event is still kind of out there.
7: Oh, that's 100% accurate. I mean, this is a cycle just like the weather changes. And as we go into 24 and 25, you will see defaults in the industry. Defaults will be a lot worse for office real estate. We all know that and are anticipating that. The time for banks to build reserves is now to set aside those funds and prepare for the charge-offs that come. I don't think the losses will be that bad because we have a lot less leverage. Leverage is typically 60% on the go-backwards basis. And the new loans today are done increasingly at 50% or even less. So credit is scarce. That means the price of credit should go up. And ultimately, I think the credit quality, while it will have bumps and bruises along the way, and we have to reserve for that. It's going to be a lot less than it was 15 years ago, thanks to less leverage and better terms than we had back in 2008, 9 and 10.
1: Do you agree with the sense that there's going to be a lot of regional bank consolidation? And should we expect this earnings season to be some kind of catalyst for that?
7: I doubt that we're going to see much consolidation. I think it's really hard for the Fed examiners to approve deals. And I think it's going to be one-off transactions, and most likely not this year. I think you may see one or two deals done next year. But most of the bank consolidation is going to be well below $100 billion, and a lot of it below $20 and $15 billion. That's where the consolidation, that's where extra banks are there. And that's, to me, where the money really is on the M&A side. I think that what will happen is business will move out of large banks who pull back and then move to the mid-sized companies who can pick up market share hmm. and really thoughtfully do new loans at better terms and better spreads. So that's the play at the moment and I think a lot of the negativity has been overdone and I think we're going to look at some better green shoots second half of the year and still a very stable banking system that is, you know, better funded, better priced and I think increasingly better reserve.
1: Fifth, third, Cinevis Wintrust, we're showing some of your favorites here. And again, your argument spins on its head, the idea that they're losing share to the big players here. So, it'll uh, be fun to watch that throughout earnings season. Chris, thanks so much for your time. We appreciate it. Absolutely. Chris Marinak from Jenny Montgomery Scott. Coming up, Channel Surfing. Bob Iger telling our own David Faber that Disney could sell off its television assets, saying they're no longer core to the business, while ESPN is core but may need a partner. We'll discuss plus cleared for takeoff. Delta Airlines reporting a record second quarter thanks to strong international demand and cheaper fuel. Can United and American follow suit? And as we head to break, here's a quick look at the markets. Dow's lost a lot of its gains, but still up 50. S&P is a little stronger, up 28 points to 4,500 on the nose right there. The Nasdaq up 178 or 1.3% right now. The 10-year note, 376. We're back after this Welcome back to The Exchange. Bob Iger will now have through 2026 to lead Disney at a pivotal time for the company. He acknowledged the challenges and made some headlines on the future of Linear TV in his exclusive interview with David Faber today. Here's what Iger had to say.
9: That they may not be core to Disney, yeah. Now, there's clearly creativity and content that they create that is core to Disney, but the distribution model, the business model that forms the underpinning of that business and that has delivered great profits over the years is definitely broken. And we have to we and, and we have to call it like it is.
1: Well, my next guest says the challenges Iger faces are quote pretty monumental, and he wrote the book Disney Wars. Uh, for joining me for more is Jim Stewart, columnist at the New York Times and a CNBC contributor, along with our very own Alex Sherman, CNBC.com's media reporter. Alex, let me quickly start with you. Um, so much to say about this. Um, what are the immediate implications of him putting some of these balls in the air?
9: I mean, Bob Iger has resisted this, honestly, for years. He put together this company. He came from ABC. So the idea now that he's finally publicly saying, look, we may need to move off the ABC group, ABC network, some of the linear cable channels, find a strategic partner potentially to take a stake in ESPN. These are big changes. They are in line with more recent comments Bob Iger made when he uh, was not the CEO or chairman. He had spoken publicly a couple times and basically alluded to the fact that the traditional linear uh, TV model is dying. He said today you just heard him the distribution model is broken. Uh, but you know analysts, investors and frankly people at Disney have pushed him to make bigger changes in this world for years. Uh, and he's resisted in part because he has uh, you know he was a part of the fabric that brought these assets together. So this is a big deal that he's saying this today.
1: That's a great point, Jim. The idea that he you know, spent his 1st tenure building, I think this is how Alex phrased it earlier, building the company, adding all of these components, and now he has to dismantle a lot of things, it sounds
8: like. Yeah, I mean, I think it's, it, it, Alex is absolutely right. People have been pushing for this for years, when, by the way, they could have gotten a lot more money for these assets. Hmm. But nevertheless, the idea that the linear networks, that the ABC network, the Disney channel... That then ESPN is not core to Disney is startling when you look back at the decades that linear TV produced the lion's share of Disney's revenue and profits. So, this is a a really big change. Um, And I, you know, that model is broken. He's absolutely right about that. What they're going to do about it, you know, I don't envy him. He's got a lot of challenges on his plate.
1: Yeah. What do you think, Jim? You know, we could talk about Disney, maybe some of it's a little self-inflicted, but this is a really critical time for media as a whole to figure out, OK, we kind of knew the distribution or, or, or the, the, the model of the last 20 years. What does the next 20 years look like?
8: Yeah, I think, you know, I don't I don't fault Iger personally, but there's, I mean, all these companies are dealing with these same monumental structural issues. But, you know, streaming was supposed to be moving in and would gradually supplant the old models and then OK, you lose a little money in the beginning in streaming, then it was going to be, you know, really profitable and you could kind of make that transition. Well, that is not is just not happening. Investors have run out of patience with billions of dollars that are being lost on streaming. And now you have, you know, the strikes going on, the cost pressures going up, the, you know, the insane spending war with deep pocketed rivals like you know, Netflix, Amazon and Apple. So you're not getting the profitability out of streaming. And meanwhile, the cable models is is deteriorating, as Iger said, faster than even he ever dreamt was possible. So they're in a really, really hard situation. I assume they are going to have to just double down on streaming. But that's going to mean, you know, spending a lot and investors are going to have to go through a pretty long trek through the desert. If indeed, you know, we finally get to the promised land where streaming actually makes money.
1: You sound so bearish, you know, and you're right, Jim. I mean, when you put it that way, he does have these monumental challenges, Alex. So I'll ask you, does this imply, you know, more media consolidation within the industry? Does this imply big tech really only has the pockets to fund the kind of streaming investment that Jim's talking about and to continue to pay up for these sports? rights? I mean, again, he alluded to this potential partner for ESPN.
9: I mean, challenge number one is you can say, "Okay, we want to move off some of these legacy assets," but what does that functionally mean? Because if you're going to sell them, then you need a buyer, and there's no clear buyer here for a lot of dying traditional cable networks. I mean, it's possible that you know Lionsgate and Stars are moving off each other. I know that the CEO of Stars, Jeff Hirsch, uh, is potentially interested in rolling up some of these legacy media cable networks so that could be one outlet private equity could be another outlet potentially um that could take on some of these assets but if there isn't a buyer it may be a situation where disney just has to spin some of these things out and then simply wait and figure out if there's some strategy that comes along uh, you know where they can at least move forward with a leaner company of course the the, the big end game is are we entering some world here where disney becomes a leaner company and theoretically could become an acquisition target for one of the big tech companies. I mean, that, right? everyone loves to speculate, oh, Apple will buy Disney. Well, Apple's never wanted any of these legacy cable networks. But if you came up with a Disney, maybe that didn't have the legacy cable networks. Hmm. Maybe one day that could be something that's
8: more enticing for a big tech company.
1: Jim, quick last word.
8: Well, yeah, I don't think it's an accident. He made this announcement at Sun Valley where all the media brokers are out there, and I'm sure they're all running the numbers on this but again alex mentioned apple that that is the dream partner for disney I mean, at least disney's dream partner i don't know if this apple's dream partner apple has shown some interest in sports they're behind amazon and netflix they have the pockets to uh fund all this and that and they have a long relationship with disney so there is a lot of talk speculation maybe dreaming about a disney apple combination of some kind.
1: Although that's not tangible enough now to help the stock trading around $90 as it continues a a tough period. Gentlemen, thank you both today. We appreciate it. Jim Stewart and Alex Sherman. And a quick programming note, if you missed that exclusive interview with Bob Iger this morning that David Faber had, don't worry. We will have an encore presentation of the full interview at 8 p.m. Eastern tonight. Coming up, ExxonMobil acquiring carbon capture firm Denbury in an all stock deal valued at nearly five billion dollars. It's to further its clean energy transition, but look at Denbury's shares. Not only are Exxon shares lower, but so are Denbury's. We'll dig into why. And as we head to break, take a look at the Dow heat map with Salesforce at a 52 week high and Cisco leading the way today, while Chevron and Walgreens are your biggest laggards. We're back after this.
10: Welcome
3: back to The Exchange. I'm Courtney Reagan. Here's your news update at this hour. It's wheels up for President Biden. He's on his way home after a one-day meeting with Nordic leaders in Helsinki and the NATO summit in Lithuania before that. The president was in Helsinki today to welcome Finland to NATO and talk about financing agreements, Sweden's NATO bid, and Finland's support of Ukraine. Finland, the newest NATO member, shares the border with Russia and applied for membership after Moscow invaded Ukraine last year. Well, the mystery of who brought cocaine into the White House remains unsolved. A Secret Service investigation determined there is not sufficient forensic or video evidence to identify the culprit. Officials say they did not detect any DNA on the bag of cocaine, despite tests at two federal labs. The White House says it is now reviewing those findings. And North Korea, state media just released this footage, appearing to show the country's latest test launch of its intercontinental, intercontinental ballistic missile. According to reports, the missile is designed to strike mainland United States today in a show of strength. Following that launch, the U.S. conducted military exercises over the Korean Peninsula. Kelly, back over to you. All right, Courtney, thanks.
1: Still ahead, a Goldilocks moment for stocks, signs of inflation cooling, a potential add to the Fed hiking rates, and the economy holding off a recession for now. We'll speak with a strategist who thinks this market is just right for investors. The Exchange will be right back. Welcome back. Stocks are on pace for a fourth straight day of gains now after the June PPI came in cooler than expected and weekly jobless claims were better last week. And my next guest says the market can stay in this Goldilocks moment. Anastasia? Anastasia? Anastasia. 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 Everybody
10: has their different ways.
1: Amoroso (laughs) is a managing director and chief investment strategist at iCapital. It's great to see you again. Great to see you, Kelly. So, okay, we all now, I think, have come around to the, as you've been saying, you know, Goldilocks moment. But... Can it, this is what I was talking to Joe about this morning, can it last, you know, yeah. how much longer can it last? Yeah. What's it going to take?
10: I, I mean, I think it can. And I know a lot of, you know, people who might be slightly negative on the market side, the positioning, which is now maybe a little bit extended or the sentiment, which is super bullish and super buoyant. But the thing is, you need a catalyst to the other side to kind of derail that. And unless and until we have that catalyst, I think the momentum is to the upside. So when I think about the catalyst, I mean, I actually think it's a positive one, which is, I mean, the fact that we got a three handle on inflation, how great is that? And there's so much to like in that inflation report. You know, the fact that the Fed now is likely going to maybe hike another, you know, 25 basis points and they're likely to pause after that, you know, five and a 5.5 percent. We can deal with that. We can work with that pause. And then we have the economy that is cooling. Maybe it's a little bit slower, but it's certainly not recessionary. And, you know, another stat that I think maybe flew a little bit under the cover of the inflation report yesterday was real wage growth for the consumers is up 1.2 percent year over year. So we went from negative real wage growth to now positive wage growth. So all of that supports the economy and that supports the stocks. You know, one thing I wonder about is, so because
1: of because last June was like the highest CPI print, 9.1%, this one has an easier comp, let's call it. Yeah. In the next six months, we're going to start to see the readings drift back up again. Are they really going to be able to pause or want to pause in an environment where we've gone, I don't know exactly what the expectation is, from three to maybe over 4% CPI again?
10: So, first of all, it's not indefinite that we're going to see those readings drift back up again. It's contingent on what inflation does on a month-over-month basis. So, you're right. If month-over-month inflation goes back to rising 0.5%, 0.7% or higher, you're exactly right. We're going to see those year-over-year numbers pop. But if month-over-month readings stay in this 0.1%, 02 or maybe 0% range, which we saw some of the core metrics, then if prices stay stable, we are actually on pace towards two percent inflation, at least on the headline, by the end of the year. So it all depends on the monthly pace of change here. And, you know, look, even if we rise a little bit in terms of inflation, you know, the fact that there is now this gap that's opened up where the Fed funds rate is five and a half percent. I'm being presumptuous about, you know, the meeting in July. And if inflation is three, That's a lot of delta. That means the positive, that real rates are actually now positive and they're going to get more positive even if the Fed just stays pat.
1: Right, which is interesting as well because it would kind of mean a tightening, you know, of conditions even if they do nothing. But the market seems to be taking that totally in stride let's talk about valuation for just a second. Yeah. So one of the points Michael Kantrowitz made this morning at Piper Sandler is that maybe we're at about a 19 forward PE right now, which is at the upper end, excluding kind of bubble areas of what the market really has ever been able to sustainably trade at. Right. So. Make the case for a a 19 times multiple on a market where you go, okay, obviously, big tech is so overweighted. The Nasdaq is literally rebalancing. Like at some point here, are we going to see some kind of rewrite? And I don't know what the catalyst is for that. But can we stay up at 19 times?
10: Look, 19 times, you know, you're right. Maybe historically, this would have been extended. But historically, did you have big tech with, you know, really good margins and Infotech with really good margins account for 27 percent of the the S&P 500? The answer is no. And so if you look at some of the big tech companies, companies and again software and you know semiconductors infotech margin is double what it is for the S&P 500 and it's such an important weight i think that's partially what's propping up this valuation and if you exclude big tech then the S&P multiple is actually right in line with its 10 year average and 15 year average so i really don't have much problem with that valuation as long as the economy is not in a recession. Mm -hmm. You know, of course, this is a very stretched multiple of 19x if we're talking about a recessionary scenario, But if we're not, then I think it's fully justified.
1: You also like the banks, maybe the big banks, uh, to clarify some of the alternatives. Why?
10: Yeah. So I've come around to banks, (laughs) to liking banks again. And, you know, after the regional banking crisis, you know, the view was I don't want to touch the sector because we needed to get through some of the deposit outflows and the uncertainty. But, you know, I'm certainly coming around to some of the larger banks. And, of course, they start to report tomorrow. But a lot of the headwinds are now well telegraphed and well known. You know, we know that the funding costs are going to rise. We know that the net interest margins are going to shrink. We know that lending is going to be a little bit slower. And of course, there's commercial real estate issues. But for the big big banks in particular, I like the potential for the pickup in capital markets activity. You know, if you look through for example, announced M&A volumes. You know, they have not yet transactions that have been executed, but they're up quarter over quarter. Hmm. Announcements are up. If you look at high-yield issuance, it's up. If you look at the IPO market, it's actually kind Opening of coming up again. back sure. to life, especially in the United States. So when you start adding all that up, the, in by the way, I do think there's more to that pickup in activity in the second half, that bodes well for the biggest banks. It also bodes well for some of the alternative asset managers, because... You know, they've done the deals, they're waiting for the exit. You know, the exit window, the IPO window has been completely shut. But to extend that that opens back up again, that could be some pretty nice upside.
1: If there's a note of caution I see in in your work lately, it's really more around, for instance, consumer staples. Why is that? Is is that a valuation concern or just they can't look at Pepsi this morning? You know, that was all pricing pretty much. And I think it was 13 percent.
10: Yeah. I mean, look, consumer staples, as long as the overall market, you know, is going up. Consumer staples will do fine. But it's certainly not the sector that I love because, first of all, there's no margin in consumer staples. You know, if I look at the S&P 500, consumer staples has among the thinnest margins. So if anything goes wrong incrementally, I think that suffers. You know, the other thing is, if we're not in a recessionary environment, I don't have to hide in staples. Consumers don't have to hide. Consumers are gonna go out and spend, you know, on airline tickets, for example. Um, You know, so I don't necessarily see a whole lot of, you know, defensive upside to that. And then there's the valuation, because at some point coming into early into the year, this was the crowded trade. You know, people were hiding in utilities, consumer staples. So as a result, the valuations of these defensives are pretty elevated. So awesome. it all makes sense. It all adds up to what's been a very good year uh, for the market
1: overall yeah. and for tech. And, and maybe it can keep going. Anastasia, thanks it. so much. We thanks, appreciate Jen. it. Anastasia Amoroso. Still ahead, ExxonMobil, speaking of deals, announcing they'll acquire carbon sequestration company Denbury for nearly $5 billion. Shares of Exxon are down about 2%, not uncommon for an acquirer. But Denbury is also falling despite the premium price tag. One could be behind the drop. That's next. And before we head to break, check out the online retail ETF iBuy. It's actually on pace for its best week since January, getting a boost from Amazon in that prime day effect. Apparently, day one was their biggest sales day ever. And enough to offset the dip in component Carvana, the worst performer with a nearly 5% drop today on a downgrade to underperform at J.P. Morgan. They slapped on a $10 price target. It's at 37 right now. Warning, shares have once again disconnected from the fundamentals. Carvana, though, still up more than 20% for the week. We're back after that. Best. Yeah. Welcome back. Let's get some show and tell where we show you a chart and tell the story. Shares of Exxon Mobil are lower on the news they planned to buy carbon capture company Denbury. It's an old stock transaction valued at $4.9 billion, and it'll give Exxon access to the largest carbon dioxide pipeline network in the United States. Exxon CEO Darren Woods told us earlier that this deal and others the company have recently made will help get more electric vehicles on the road and play a big part in reducing CO2 emissions.
4: With the three deals that we've done already, we've effectively doubled the population of electric vehicles on the road today with the amount of CO2 that we, we uh, are uh, sequestering. So, if you think about 100 million tons, that's 20 times that. So, that's, you know, it's, you can think about it in w- different terms, but that's a lot of emissions being uh, sequestered. In fact, there's, that would be the largest reduction, step reduction in CO2 emissions that, that we've seen anywhere in the world.
1: Interestingly, Denbury investors don't seem as jazzed about the deal. Shares of both companies are lower by about 2%. Dan Pickering, founder of Pickering Energy Partners, tells us the deal is only a small premium, and it's notably below where Denbury traded when this takeover was first rumored. That's why we're not seeing a bigger price action, and it's likely driving some sellers. Still ahead, shares of Delta are edging higher after posting record earnings and revenue. CEO Ed Bastion staying positive on demand, but with shares up more than 45% this year, is it time to take profits? We'll discuss that next. Welcome back to The Exchange. If there's any indication the travel boom is up and running, take a look at Delta Airlines, up about half, one and a half percent today after beating the street forecast on earnings and raising its full year earnings guidance. CEO Ed Bastian telling CNBC this morning he's remaining bullish on consumer demand and points out the corporate travel path is still in recovery due to office vacancies. Here's what he had to say.
7: It's not that people are afraid to fly or corporates are using virtual. It's that the offices aren't open. And as the offices continue to open, I think we'll see some steady improvement there.
1: My next guest has been flagging Delta's strength for some time. So what does it tell us about results from United and American next week? And is it sustainable? Let's bring in Helene Becker, Managing Director and Senior Research Analyst at Cowan Group. Helene, welcome. Hi, Kelly. After Delta has re-rated the way that it has, how much upside is still left, do you think?
11: Um, so we think we're in early innings. So we think there's a lot of upside. Um, historically, the stocks have sold at eight to ten times forward earnings. So they guided today, for an example, to six to seven dollars. Um, our 2023 estimate is six dollars and seventy cents. But you know, to make the math easy, seven times eight is fifty-six. Seven times ten is seventy. So you can see where there's still upside in the in the
1: stock price. Sure. And a lot of people are arguing that maybe this can go back to, you know, the strong trends we saw before the pandemic hit, at least for Delta, maybe for some others. How many other carriers would you put in the same uh, stratosphere right now?
11: Yeah, I think that um, your earlier point of American and and United reporting next week, um, I would put them in the same class because really, Kelly, what we're seeing is the shift away from domestic to international. People tend to forget that a year ago we had to test to come back to the U.S. until mid-June, and by then summer vacation plans were set. Most people plan their summer vacation between mid-March and mid-May, and they weren't going to change those plans. Um, And so we think of summer of 21 and 22 was domestic travel, 23, 24 is going to be international travel, and you see that with significantly higher fares, and, um, you know, as a result, we are focused on the international
3: carriers.
1: Yes. So those you would include United and American as those with decent exposure there versus I can imagine, you know, some of the more regionals here in the U.S. that don't really ha- have that feature.
11: Exactly so. Some some of the ultra low cost airlines, like, um, we have market perform rated on companies like JetBlue and Spirit, but um, they do fly to some close in international markets, including Mexico, the Caribbean, Northern South America. I just think that this year the shift is to Europe. Europe seems to be very, very crowded. <laughs> and yes. and uh, I'm hearing stories of lots of lines and so on. And we think then next summer we'll shift to Asia Pacific. And, um, and, and so I think that we're seeing this trend to more travel longer duration trips, um, lasting further into the season. So instead of that cliff after Labor Day going into October, especially when you can work from anywhere. um, And and I think that that trend is going to continue for some time. And and for a company like Delta, there's a really good opportunity here because they're 60-40 domestic international. And as they get bigger in international markets with their joint ventures and their own metal, you'll see that shift. And international ticket prices are generally higher than domestic. I mean, that's probably like the most obvious thing I could say, right? <laughs> and so you'll see that revenue start to move, um, continue to move up. And it should, it should translate to higher earnings. So where
1: are you on JetBlue? And, and where, whatever happened with the Spirit deal?
11: Yeah. So um, people forget we have a market perform on JetBlue. They do have international. They started Paris recently. They're starting Amsterdam. They do London. And then, of course, there's the Caribbean, Mexico, northern South America. Um, We have a market perform on the stock, um, mostly because of the uncertainty surrounding SPIART. So where we are is the Justice Department um, is suing to block the merger and that trial gets underway in mid-October. So we should have some resolution before
1: um, the beginning of the second quarter of 2024. Do do investors think there's any brighter hopes based on what happened with Microsoft Activision or is that not applicable?
8: Yeah,
11: no, actually, Kelly, I think that's a really good read through to what could potentially happen with JetBlue. I feel like this Justice Department doesn't like mergers in general, sure. um, even when they make a lot of sense. And um, they're probably a little bit emboldened by the fact that they won the Northeast Alliance case. But then um, last week, JetBlue said they wouldn't appeal the decision, instead focusing their energy on the spirit merger.
1: All right. It, it, we might say for better or worse, but that's another discussion. <laughs> Elaine, thank you very much for your time today. We appreciate it. Thanks, Kelly. Helene Becker from Cowan. All right, that does it for The Exchange, everybody. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place.